Um, so we'll dive right in. So you've been in Colossians, you've been in Colossians 1, and you've been looking at the deity, the glory, glory of Christ, um, and Paul transitions. He transitions into verse 21, and um, after he talks about um, the uh, deity of Christ, and he says in verse 21, so we're not on the handout yet, but just kind of reorientate you to where we are for this morning, and maybe for some of you it's your first time here. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blameless, free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Once you come to Christ, you can't lose your salvation. If it ever seems like a person can lose their salvation, we have to go back and say, were they ever a believer in the first place? And I believe this verse is speaking to that. So if you continue in your faith, and this is your hope, this is the gospel that you have heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. And here's where Paul establishes who he is. And this is the bridge into what we're going to be looking at this morning, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And so now we're going to look at Paul's ministry. And this is where the handout picks up. And so uh, we're on this side. So I'm going to get to the diagram on the back at the end. But we're on this side, um, starting in verse 24. Such rich, exciting passage to look at this morning. Paul writes, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body that is the church. What is that about? We're going to look at it in just a second. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God, from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I told, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I'm absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit, Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So I got I got several points I want to make this morning, but I love Andy Stanley uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and he says that when you when you speak, you should have at least one point that you're driving home. And so if I had to choose at the beginning, so I'll go ahead and give away one of my blanks that's going to come up in a little bit. If I had to choose at the beginning, one point that I want to press home for me and you this morning is that ministry, and particularly we're going to be talking about discipleship, because I believe that is true ministry. Ministry is, and discipleship is worship. So this is worship. Ministry is worship. It's not separate from worship. Worship is not just something that we do on Sunday mornings, or when we come on Tuesday mornings as Bible study, and then, then we leave, and we stop doing worship, and then we do ministry. 
ministry is worship. Discipleship is worship. So that's my main point, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but we've got to build a case for that, and so that's where we're headed. I'm going to start at the end to build a case. And so I've got lines all over the place, and so at the, the bottom, I want to make a comment on verses 3 and 4. Um, it says that Jesus, in him, is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, um, which I, I just think is, is, is wonderful. You, you, you don't have to read a bunch of books. You don't have to watch the news. You don't have to watch the History Channel to learn what you need to know for this life, you go to Jesus. It's a, it's a relationship with him. That's where all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then Paul says, I'm telling you this because I don't want anyone to delude you with lies. And I, I think about this all the time. Whenever I'm sinning and I am being tempted to sin, uh, Buster, you've heard him say that it's usually because of one of three different things, or maybe all three, it's either the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I recently did a study on the parable of the souls, and you see how the, the word comes out, and it um, tempts people and sidelines people, and so does the flesh, and so does the devil. But I believe the devil's behind everything, and he's the one that started it in the Garden of Eden with telling Eve a lie, which Adam believed, and sin entered the heart of man, and then death in every way hit us. God fulfilled his promise that if you eat of this tree, you will die. And then we see people die physically, spiritually, socially, psychologically, death in every way. And so Paul is saying, I don't want you to continue, I don't want you to, continue to be deluded. Uh, Jesus says in John uh, 8.44 that the devil is the liar and the father is of lies. He says in uh, Revelation 21 that he's the deceiver of the nations. In Ephesians 6.11 it says that the devil is scheming against us. And so Paul is saying if we're going to have people move to a place of true ministry which leads to worship, we can't believe the lies. So the world, and this is a few blanks you can fill in if you've got pens to fill them in, the world is, and this is verse 4, is held captive by lies. You, you are held captive by lies to some degree. Now for most of us in here, the, the, the chains have been broken by Jesus and you are no longer slaves to sin. However, practically the way it works is when you get up in the morning, you immediately start believing lies about yourself or about the world around you. And so you got to speak truth to yourself. you got to get wise so that you can live a life that honors Christ and not one that is captive, that goes back to being captive to the devil. I mean, Paul speaks about this in Galatians, that we should not, we've been set free, so do not let yourselves be taken captive by a yoke of slavery. So anyway, since the answer is only the truth sets people free, and the truth and everything that comes with truth, wisdom, and the treasures of wisdom and knowledge is found in Jesus Christ. He says in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so the devil's telling lies, but a relationship with Jesus, a, a vibrant, intimate relationship with Jesus sets people free. So that's where we're starting, and that's Paul's passion, and that's why Paul is a servant for the gospel, and that's why he's an ambassador for Christ, and that's why he's a minister for the church. And we see that in verse 24. So let's move back up to the top. And he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And this is a very interesting, confusing, but I think uh, exciting passage uh, where he says in line, in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Now, at first glance, you may think, well, that doesn't seem right because uh, Christ, when he died, didn't he die 
for all sin, for all men that accept him for all time. And there's nothing that is incomplete in his atoning sacrifice for us. And if you believe that this morning, then you're right. So, so and this verse does not contradict that at all. In fact, this verse sets us up so that we can be ministers of the gospel and continue on in what Christ started on the cross. And so my thoughts, and I have this in the first box, if you follow the short line, is just as we follow Christ, so you and I follow Christ by taking up our, Luke 9.23 is clear on this, our cross. And so Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And if we're going to accept Christ into our life, it's not just about praying a prayer. It's two different extremes the South believes. One is you just say a prayer and you're a Christian. You just intellectually believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you're good. The other extreme is that if you do a bunch of good works and you're saved, neither are true. It's true faith. It's faith that results in a surrendered life to the Lord. It's the same kind of faith. There's two different faiths in this room right now. There's the faith that I have in, this, in the chair that you're sitting in, and there's the faith that you have in the chair that you're sitting in. I believe that if I sat in your chair, it would hold me up. That's an intellectual belief. But you have entrusted your life to the chair you're sitting in. That's the kind of commitment Christ is calling us to. That's what it means to follow him. But specifically, he says, we got to die. we got to die to ourselves. we got to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. So when you look at this verse, this is the way I see it, and it's really exciting to see it this way. I think this is right. Uh, I'm totally fine for a discussion. If I say anything that you're like, I don't really get that, or that's not right, feel free to just shout it out. That's what happens at my house. So I'm, not, I'm, I'm very used to me trying to say something, and I get interrupted by women. So it's no, no problem. <laughs> Um, so this is the way I see verse 24 Christ suffered for the entire church once for all okay he did it it's good it's done however he's given us the privilege in this present church to suffer for the future church it's pretty exciting because you look at it specifically it says in my flesh Paul says I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body so that is the church so the way I see it is Christ suffered for the body those who would come to Christ the church and now the body gets to take up their crosses and follow Jesus by suffering for the body those who would come to Christ and so Paul talks about in Philippians 3 that we get to identify with Jesus and that we get to suffer along with him as we take up our cross and follow him. It has nothing to do with atonement, but it has everything to do with ministry. So, verse 24. Now, if you look at verse 25, and there's a lot we could say. I picked just a few things, and so I'm just going to kind of run down some things that um, mean a lot to me, and hopefully um, they would encourage you. So, in verse 25... He says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. There's three things I see here that we need to know as encouragement when we think about discipleship as worship. First thing is that ministry is a responsibility, that it was given to Paul as a steward, stewardship, so that he can be a steward and that you can be a steward. So it's a responsibility to continue on what Jesus started on the cross with the expansion of the kingdom through the gospel. And it's a gift. It's a privilege to be able to share in ministry. It's not a burden. It should not be a burden. And hopefully it will not be a burden as we look at this. But it's a blessing. It's a gift. And not only is a blessing to us, but the gospel, but we get to be a blessing of others. And so we are a channel of blessing. And so ministry is responsibility and a gift. 
and you are of a channel of blessing. My favorite uh, pastor that's now with the Lord, um, he is, uh, his name is Evie Hill, and uh, he's African-American, lived in Los Angeles, and um, I love listening to him. He just, he is a very uh, powerful speaker, and he's talked about this before, about the blessing that we have in the gospel, and he says that God gets it to you in order to send it through you. That we have not been called to be a reservoir of blessings. We have been called to be a channel of blessings. If God gets it to you, he's intending to get it through you. And that goes with the gospel, and I believe that goes with material possessions. When he blesses you with a check that you weren't expecting to come in the mail, yes, he did have you in mind, but he didn't primarily have you in mind, maybe. He gets it to you in order for it to go through you. So ministry is a responsibility and a gift, and we are called to be a channel of blessing. Then if you look down, verse 26, it talks about this mystery that has now been revealed through Christ, and that is now that the nations can come to know Christ. And in verse 27, it says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And this is an incredible, precious truth, such an exciting truth. And uh, a few years ago, I took a seminary class on the Trinity, and I had no idea that this class was going to impact me in this way and how I thought about a relationship with God. But this is what I gained from this class, and I want to share it with you as I look through the Word and I study some verses, and you probably are very aware of this. Maybe this should just be a reminder of what you already know. But when, when God created, you see, God created in Genesis 1, and he says uh, in Genesis 1:26, "Let us make man in our image." Uh, when I share the gospel with college students and I start here with who God is and why He created and why we're here and why He pursues a relationship with us, I try to um, put away the lie that Satan gives us that God, if you do believe in God, that He created us in order if, because He needed a relationship, like he needed us. He created man. Why did he create man? Because he needed man to have fulfillment in his life. Well, that's so far from the truth. And the reason it's so far from the truth is God needs nothing, and God is one being, three persons, and he has everything he so desires in the relationship of the Trinity. It's just one big party with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the reason God created was because God is love, and true love gives itself away. It's the same thing with us. Whenever we have a friend that we want to go do something and we're having a good time, let's invite a few more and include them on what we have here, what's special here. It's the reason why I believe parents have children, that you're having this love relationship with one another, and let's share this with others. Let's bring more people into the world, and let's have a family, and let's give this love away, because that's what true love does. And that's why God created man. And then what I just learned recently, uh, Christy and I are doing some premarital counseling with some couples, and we're reading this book, which I highly recommend. It's actually a uh, um, premarital counseling book. Steve Heron recommended it. It's called Catching Foxes. And I believe it's a great marriage book. I mean, you can just kind of reword some things, and it'd be good for your marriage by John Henderson. But one thing he says, and y'all probably are familiar with this, but it hit me like a ton of bricks in a good way, is he said when, he, when God looked at man, once he created Adam, and he said it's not good for man to be alone, I thought 
the reason he said that was because man needed woman to be complete. He needed a helper. He needed fellowship. But John Henderson makes the argument, and I believe this to be true, is that Adam had everything he needed in a relationship with God. He didn't need woman to have completion. But because he was created in the image of God, and go back to what we said earlier, true love gives itself away. God is true love. Man, in order to fulfill and live out the image of God, had to have someone to give himself away to. So you can go home and tell your husbands that primarily you weren't here to help him. Primarily you were here to receive his love. So that's a pretty good deal. So anyway, when you, when you go back and you think about that and how that the Trinity had everything the Trinity needed and man was created to be able to be, to be brought into the party. And then you look at this passage right here where it says in verse 27 that Christ is in you. That's the hope of glory. And you look at these truths. So if you look in the box on the right, the blessing that we have, that we have received, and now that we're supposed to give away to others, the blessing is intimacy. And so that's the blessing of the gospel. It's not primarily that we're going to go to heaven. It's not primarily that we can have a good life here. But it's so that we can have a relationship with God. John 17, 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you and the one that, that you've sent. And so the blessing is intimacy. God is one God and three persons. The Trinity is three distinct but not separate persons. And these are two truths that's so encouraging to me. Number one is to be a Christian. It's for someone else to be in you. You see this in Galatians 2.20, where Paul says that I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. John 14.20, he clearly says, I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I are in you. So at the very same time, you're in Jesus, and he's in you. You can't get any tighter than that. That's intimacy. And then to be a Christian, another truth is to be in someone else, which is in another reality. And so I can't explain it, but right now we're in fellowship in the Trinity. So if you, if you look in Ephesians 2, 6 through 7, it says, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So you're in a relationship within the party of the Trinity right now so that you can experience now his kindness given to you through his grace. C.S. Lewis says that when we get to heaven, it's going to feel like home because we were already there. I mean, isn't that awesome? I heard recently somebody say that, you know, you think about when you get to heaven, what are you going to want to do, where you want to go? And I want to go talk to Moses and see what it was like to be with God on the mountain, and I want to be with the disciples or Peter to see what it was like to walk with Jesus on water. I want to be with John the Baptist to see what it was like, ask him what it was like when Jesus comes down into the water to get baptized with him. But the truth of the matter is probably more going to be Moses and John the Baptist and the disciples coming to you and saying, what was it like for God to live within you and for you to live within a relationship with God? So the blessing is intimacy. Um, in 28 to 29, and these are actually my favorite. <laughs> so I get real excited about the ones we've looked at, but these are just 
they, they were just really excited. So him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So when I think about proclaiming, I think evangelism. When I think warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, I think establishing people in the faith, showing them how to study the word, showing them how to uh, the importance of community and fellowship like this, uh, the importance of prayer um, to be able to keep them speaking truth to themselves and receiving truth, and then the presenting everyone mature in Christ, that that is the goal of discipleship. And uh, this is where I get, and this is my point with discipleship, is worship. And uh, I don't know exactly what heaven's going to be like. And I, at times it's hard for me to wrap my brain around what it means like to have rewards in heaven. But I think I'm getting closer to grasping it. And uh, so I'm teaching a class at PCA right now. And uh, we're going through a survey of the Gospels. And i uh, been talking about what it means to know Jesus and what it means to surrender your life to him. And um, we've been, somehow we've, we've, we've talked about um, hell. And I, I believe that there's actually degrees of hell. And uh, that it depends basically on what degree of hell you go to is how much you are exposed to the gospel, if you will. So it, Jesus says in Luke 12, 47 through 48, he says that if, if anyone knows the will of his master and does not do it, He'll be beaten with many blows, and if anyone does not know the will of his master, he'll be beaten with fewer blows. So, a few things. You don't go to hell because you don't accept Christ. You go to hell because you're a sinner. But accepting Christ is the only thing that can keep you from going to hell. So if you don't accept Christ, everyone goes to hell, whoever doesn't accept Christ. However, I believe that there's some kind of connection, and I can't quite figure it out totally, with how much you were exposed to the gospel. So how many opportunities you had to accept Christ when you were on earth, and how many times you stiffed-armed those opportunities. And I think, honestly, the degrees of punishment isn't necessarily going to be whips, but I think it's going to be, because we look at the beggar and Lazarus, we see that there's a remembrance of his time on earth. I think it's going to be remorse. I think it's just going to be the pain of remembering every time I turn down the gospel. On the flip side, when you get to heaven, there's going to be rewards. Well, what are these rewards about? Is it that I accept Christ by faith and then I just do a bunch of good works and the more good works I do, maybe the more good rewards I get when I get to heaven? I don't, I don't think that's it at all. Because we look at these passages uh, in this box that I have in discipleship is worship. And uh, so let's just look at a few of them. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.14, he says, On the day of the Lord Jesus, you will boast in us and we will boast of you. And then in Luke 15.10, and you're probably very familiar with this passage, that every time a uh, person comes to Christ, there is joy before the angels of God, God over one sinner who repents. And so it sounds like there's two places for two parties here in heaven. One is when you're going into heaven and people are coming in with you, and I'm not saying like literally with you, but maybe they're already there or maybe they're coming behind, but there seems to be some kind of connection with those that you've ministered on earth that you get an extra dose of boasting when they show up to heaven. 
And particularly, there's a party in heaven when people on earth come to Christ. So I don't really know what it's going to look like, address the Luke 15, 10 one first, but I kind of imagine it's kind of fun to think about, like if I'm in heaven and life is still going on the earth, and I'm over in one side of heaven, and I hear about this party going another, and maybe an angel will say, hey, come over here, Josh. There's a party going on, and you get to be a part of it because someone just came to Christ, and it was a result of so-and-so that you led to Christ, that you discipled, that he discipled, that he discipled, and that person uh, came to Christ, and you get to be a part of the party. And I don't know about you, but that's, that's reward enough for me. And so, and then when I go into heaven, and maybe there's people with me that go with me, or maybe it's before, or maybe it's after, and they actually enter heaven, and it's maybe someone that I've had an influence on, I, I believe that's part of the reward. And I get clarity from that when I look at 1 Thessalonians 2.19, and I put it up with Revelation 4.10. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Paul says it's you. Those he's ministering to. So when Jesus comes, what am I going to boast in? And particularly, what is my crown? It's going to be you. And then we look in Revelation 4.10, particularly with the elders in heaven, it says they cast their what? Before the throne. Their crowns. And so what are they worshiping with? What are they giving back to the Lord? Well, if you just take this literally, there might be some kind of connection with, I worship for eternity. I have more to offer and worship to God for eternity because of the internal investments that I made on this earth. And so then you look at Matthew 6, 20, where Jesus says, lay up treasures in heaven. What is that? I believe that's the people you invest in now. And that's why I say discipleship is worship. So when you leave here and you are investing in people, you are stocking up for a wonderful experience in heaven. Now, what will heaven be like if you don't? lead anyone to Christ, it's still going to be great. It's still going to be incredible. It's going to be more than we can ever imagine. But somehow, I think the rewards is connected to the eternal investments you make on earth. Because honestly, it's not that hard to think about or to figure out. There's only three things that see eternal, and that's God, the Word of God, and the souls of men. So I mean, when you're supposed to be laying up treasures in heaven that last, I mean, what else is there really to invest in? So logically, it just makes sense. It's you take the word of God and you invest in the souls of men and women. Got to remember I'm talking to women and women. So uh, discipleship is worship. Um, and then you look, well, how do you do that? Um, that just kind of stresses me out because I worship is, <laughs> I've always deemed worship being fun and I love singing, and, uh, but ministry seems to be hard and it's a struggle. Well, it's a struggle for Paul. Let's look at this in verse 29. For this I told, or labor, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Uh, and so, okay, I'm glad Paul said that because I identify with that because I, I struggle um, as well. You look at this box, and uh, let me read the quote first, and then I'll fill in the, the gaps with the verse and the, the, the line at the top. Uh, Jim Elliott, probably most of you are familiar with him. He died in the 50s. He was a missionary in South um, American Ecuador, and his wife was Elizabeth Elliott. In fact, we named our oldest daughter uh, Elizabeth after her and because um, we wanted to raise our daughter telling about this hero of the faith. Well, when Jim Elliott was dating Elizabeth, um, she had, in her, the way she uh, recounts it as a horrifying experience of going to one of his wrestling matches when he was in high school. 
And I, at the end of the match, I mean, she was just like, it was just sickening to her. And so she uh, asked him afterwards, she says, do you really like to do that? And this is how he described it. And um, he says, well, before the match, I'm scared to death. During the match, I'm in agony. And after the match, I'm exhausted. But yeah, I, I like to wrestle. <laughs> and uh, when I think about ministry, particularly with evangelism, that's the way I kind of feel when I'm sharing the gospel. People it's before I share the gospel, um, I'm in agony, uh, stressing myself over it. During it, um, um, I mean, before the match, I'm scared to death. During it, I'm in agony. And afterwards, I'm exhausted. But boy, do I love evangelism. And uh, when I share my faith, it's the best thing I did that day. And so, and I think Paul would say the same thing. And he says it in Colossians 1.29. And this is what I say at the top here is how ministry blesses you as it blesses them. Remember, it's a channel of blessing. He's going to send it to you in order to get it through you. The word is a means of grace. You don't get more grace through the word, but you experience more grace. I mean, Paul told the, um, in Acts, he told the uh, elders at Ephesus that the word of God is a means of grace. Uh, fellowship is a means of grace. In Ephesians 4, he says um, that um, when we speak to one another, we're giving grace to those who hear. Prayer is a means of grace. And Hebrews chapter 4, he says that we approach the throne of God's grace. And evangelism is a means of grace. Specifically, if it's going to get to them, it's got to go through you. So for this, I toll struggling with all this energy that he powerfully works within me. I love the Greek in this passage because struggling, the Greek word, and I can't pronounce it, but you can tell that that's where we get our word agonize from. And energy, energia, is um, where we obviously get our word energy from. Powerfully, the Greek for that is where we get the word dynamite from. And then works is really the same word as energy. And so you could look at it, read it like this. For this I told, agonizing with all his energy that he powerfully, uh, that he dynamitely energizes within me. And so ministry is something that even though it can exhaust you, at the very same time it refuels you. Because it's his energy going through you to others. So I just want to encourage you in that. That, you know, Piper, John Piper, you're familiar probably with him. And he speaks of Christian hedonism. And that um, God is most glorified in us. And we're most satisfied in him. And I would say that that's for ministry as well. That if you want God to be glorified, then do ministry. And in doing so, you will be very satisfied in him. And a passage that comes to mind is 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul speaks about a thorn in the flesh, and he asked God to remove it from him, and God says, no, um, I'm not going to, and Paul says, okay. He says, um, since your power is made perfect in weakness, therefore I rejoice all the more gladly about my weaknesses, and so if you say weakness, ministry is a weakness, and I'm exhausted through it, that's when God's power shows up. So, ministry blesses you as it blesses them as you look toward discipleship and your worship and setting up eternal riches in heaven. Now, what is the main work of ministry? And this is my final point. Uh, Paul goes on in chapter 2, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have seen me face to face. So I think it's interesting. He uses this word struggle again. Um, and so what is he saying when he's saying, I'm struggling for you? Because it doesn't seem uh, that he's there 
Because he see, I mean, obviously he's not there. He's writing a letter, but he's writing a letter to people who have, have not even seen me. He says, I struggle for you even though you have not seen me. And what is the struggle? What's the goal? That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And it reminds me of Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. And so I'm thinking, is he praying? Is that what's happening? Is that just not his goal? Is he praying? And so I do a little cross-referencing toward the end of Colossians, and I find this verse, Colossians 4.12, where he's talking about Epaphras, I guess that's how you say that. He said he's always struggling, he's always agonizing on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature. Where do we... Mature, okay, complete in Christ is what we were looking at earlier. That's the goal of discipleship, that we would present people perfect in Christ, mature in Christ to God. How do you get them there? I believe the main work of ministry is prayer. And I've heard said before, and I believe this to be so true, is that um, it's a fine thing, and I've already emphasized it, that it's good to talk to men about God, but it's far better to talk to God about men. And so prayer is the work of the ministry. Is prayer easy? I don't know what your experience is, but prayer is hard for me. It's hard for me to take my focus off what I want to do. I'm very prideful, and so I feel like I can do things and get it done, but prayer is humbling for me as to say I can't, but God can, and for me to stop and say, God, you do the work, that's hard work. And so in one sense, it seems easy, but in another sense, I think this really is work, and it's the work of the ministry that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So I'm done, and I wanted to leave you with this. So on the back of your page, um, this is just what our ministry uses um, as the uh, discipleship index. I ought to get Kristen or Jordan or Mackenzie to stand up and close their eyes and just mem- so they've got it memorized so they could just kind of our campus outreach staff tell you this but this is just if you're saying okay josh thanks thanks for the word this is encouraging i think i i got it okay i want to make my heaven experience better if you will so what can i start doing now to do so and hopefully you know this can be a guideline maybe to help you know where to start and how to take people from point a to point b and if you start basically in the middle with you got a non-christian what do you do you tell them the gospel you evangelize then they become a new disciple Lord willing, you establish them with faith. What does that look like? How do you do it? And so how do you evangelize? This is how you do it. How do you establish? This is how you do it. How do you equip? Which means basically help someone take the basics, how to study the word, how to pray, the importance of fellowship, discipleship, evangelism, and how to teach them to teach others. And then you got to multiply and disciple, and then you help them, you coach them to move out into a sphere of influence where they're not so much connected to you anymore and they're starting to reproduce their lives exponentially. And then at the top, these are marks of a new disciple, a maturing disciple, a multiplying disciple, and a mobilizing disciple. So anyway, hopefully that'll be helpful. Thank you. It's good to be with y'all. Let me pray and um, then we'll let y'all break out. And I guess Rose will probably give us more direction. God, thank you for the opportunity just to be reminded of your gospel and, Lord, what it means to have a relationship with you and what's central to that, and that is to know you. And, Lord, thank you for allowing us to be a part of um, the Trinity. And I I, I tremble to even say that because it almost doesn't seem right, but then i got to remind myself that we are 
for those of us that's trusted in Christ, that we are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb and that we're righteous in your sight. So therefore, Christ can be in us and we can be in him as he is in you. And so, God, thank you, Lord, for letting us come to the party. And, Lord, pray that our lives will be about investing in eternal treasures in heaven. And, Lord, let us be those who give our lives away to people. And, God, let us find refreshment and blessing in doing so. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.